So the poet Wordsworth said this at one time, the world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. The world is too much with us. That's actually the name of that poem. Now what he was talking about was the disconnection and blindness to the natural, to creation. And he spoke of us, human beings, as being far more enamored and committed to the creation of our own hands. The, man-made stuff versus the wonders of God's created world. So there's these very two different perspectives, these very two different approaches, these two different value systems, really, and really two divergent paths. There's the getting and the spending, laying the waste of our powers, uh, the fruit of the world being too much with us. We're seeing God's glory, and I'm putting sort of my spin on that as well. We're going to see a similar phenomenon, these two different value systems, two different paths, our gospel passage today, so we'll be in John 2, 13 to 22. If you have your Bibles or smartphones, I encourage you to pull those up. The cleansing of the temple, or the clearing out of the temple, if you prefer a more gentle way of putting it, quite the famous incident in Jesus' ministry. Some would say infamous, I don't know. Artists over the centuries have reflected upon this story, right? This is the time time that Jesus loses his cool and acts out in righteous anger. It's a very important story. That's in all the Gospels, all four. Every, every writer records it in his own way. John offers a predictably different nuance uh, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Jesus and the Twelve, along with hundreds upon hundreds of other Jewish pilgrims, so that's the picture you have to have, all flocking back to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, the Jews were scattered all over the ancient Near East, right? This is di- the diaspora. Not uncommon to travel three or four days to get to Jerusalem one way or more, really. Passover was the most well-attended of all the three big Jewish feasts. And Jerusalem swelled during this time, bursting at the seams in terms of people. Purpose of the Passover, probably know it, right? They're going to celebrate their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, right? Brought about by God's gracious hand. I can't think of, so I'm thinking of like Charlton Heston, you know, let my people go, right? It's that famous line, Pharaoh, let my people go. So it celebrates that place where it takes place, no surprise, it's at the temple, which is at the center of Jerusalem, and it would, have, it would have been high up on a hill. So you could see it from a distance as you made your pilgrimage there. You could see the temple where you were going uh, as you looked towards the great capital city. Now, this is temple number two for the Jewish people. This is Herod's temple. Solomon's temple had been destroyed. Uh, they began building this temple about 20 years before Jesus was born. And it took them a little less than 50 years to finish it. The temple meant a lot of things to many different people. But just to be clear, the first and foremost purpose of the temple is the, and I use the in that sense, the physical location where God dwelled and was present to his people. Okay? Massive physical sign of his covenantal faithfulness to Israel. It was a symbol of a Jewish shared identity. I mean, whether you were considered yourself devout or not, it was tremendously important. It was the center of Jewish life. It is that symbol. Now, I want you to think with me of the stability and the rootedness and the comfort that might have provided for a Jew living at that time. They lived under oppressive Roman rule, but there was the temple, right? That's an assurance. It's okay, God is with us. God is still with us. There's the temple. We have that to look to. There's a tremendous assurance in that. Now, by all the historical accounts, we have just different uh, 
stories about this, the temple was really impressive, incredibly impressive. It was beautiful. Left quite an impression on people who saw it for the first time. And I can't think of a modern day parallel for us because we don't have like the one place that as Christians we point to physically uh, that's some sort of building or monument. I mean, maybe some people think of the Vatican or St. Peter's Basilica. I don't know. For me, the closest example I can think of in the West is I, I, I was able to go to uh, the eastern part of Italy, Ravenna, and there's a small handful of churches in Ravenna, and they're not just church buildings, they're not old, they are that. Uh, they're also the oldest mosaics in the West, and they're stunning. I mean, I don't know how many little mosaic pieces there are in those, but gajillions, I'll just say that. Uh, incredible, and they're from the 5th and 7th century. Beautiful, they're stunning, they're radiant, they're just luminescent, and they just invoke to me the sense of awe and of rootedness. Here's the Christian story, and it's carrying forward through the centuries. The worship of God, some of these are still active. Uh, here's, here's God's, the worship of God still continuing through time, despite wars and kingdoms going up and down, rising and falling, the passage of time. So there's that stability, there's that rootedness, that assurance. That might be just an inkling of what an average Jew felt like when they saw the temple back in the first century. Now you know this, but the temple existed for, guess what? What we're doing right here, worship. That's why it existed. It was the meeting place between the Lord and his people. So you would sacrifice there, right? Do you, you offer your sacrifices there, have the priest do that for you for purification so you can enter God's presence. All these feasts and festivals that you hear about in the Old Testament, that's where they happened. So you would thank the Lord at things like Passover. You would thank the Lord or celebrate the birth of a child at the temple or a good harvest or these other key life events. You would do this at the temple. It was holy ground common ground where heaven intersected with earth and where God met with humankind. So really communion, you need to have that in your mind. Worship, deep devotion to the Lord, that was to be temple life, that was to be normative. It's pretty wonderful when you think about it. That's what it was supposed to be. But what the temple actually was in our story is different in practice. So let's find out. So Jesus and the twelve, they arrived at the temple alongside this picture, hundreds of other pilgrims. And I got to say, this scene that we see in the temple is not unusual. Nothing unusual is going on. So they navigate the crowds, they find the temple court. The temple had a few of these sort of around its outer perimeter. This one was known as the court of Gentiles. It's outside sort of this area we call the sanctuary. So you can think of it like a foyer or a narthex or our humble little welcome table back there. Think of it that way. Still considered part of the temple, but sort of on the outside of it. So that's where they're gathered, the temple court. It's a busy scene. There's tons of people, scads. It's louder, more bustling than it would normally be. Preparations are at hand. So just like we prepare for Lent, the Jews are preparing themselves for Passover. They need purification, right? So they can uh, come into Yahweh's holy presence. That's what the sacrificial system is there for. Thus the animal sacrifices, the mention of the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons and all that. So these animals that they're selling in the courts, they're necessary. They're required by the law. They needed this. You know, the pilgrims couldn't travel three to four days with animals in tow. They had to buy the supplies when they got there. Okay? And if you came from another country, which several did, you needed to exchange your money into the right currency so that you could pay the temple tax. You had to do that. And so that you could buy the animals for the sacrifice. These happen for a small fee, of course, right? People are making money off this. 
This is all business as usual for Passover. This is normal for that day and age. These are the established economic practices at the temple. This is a well-oiled machine. That's the picture you need to have. This is how you prepare, right? You gotta purify yourself so that you can participate in Passover and in worship. Nothing unusual, nothing, this is business as usual. Lots of hustle bustle, lots of people, lots of business going on. You probably have a large increase in Roman soldiers too, because with more crowds, Rome's gonna be careful there. That's the picture. You can kind of picture that with me, I hope. Things appear, again, normal. This is just how things go. Jesus is no stranger to this temple scene. He grew up doing this, right? He's a devout Jew. But, <laughs> this is a big but, if you know anything about what happens whenever Jesus visits Jerusalem, you pay attention to this in the Gospels. Anytime Jesus goes to Jerusalem, holy cats, watch out. It's a powder keg. Whenever he comes to Jerusalem, generally there is conflict and there is, uh, mm, on no small scale, there's trouble. That's generally what happens when he goes to Jerusalem. So, you know the story. He sees the merchants. He sees uh, them selling animals. He sees the money changing tables, all that. And his anger is kindled. He makes a whip. Picture this. This takes a little time. He doesn't just have one ready made. He has to take some cords, fashion a whip, and get down to business. That takes some time and attention. So Jesus does that. And he drives them out of the temple. Every single one of them, animals included. Pours out the coins, turns over the money changing tables, saying, Take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Another translation, stop turning my father's house into a market, into an emporium. Now, put yourself in the scene. This would have been utter, noisy chaos in an already bustling temple court. Think of this. This would have taken some time. I don't know how many people Jesus had to drive out, but I don't think it's like the movies depict where he cracks the whip a few times, screams a little bit, and half a dozen people sort of scurry off and it's done. It probably took some time to get everybody out, all the animals out, all the people out. Now, if you're a pilgrim onlooker, or if you're a temple official, or if you're a Roman soldier watching all that go down, you're thinking, who is this lunatic who's driving out the animals and the merchants? Like, who is this? We are able to say, why would Jesus, the Son of God, put a halt to these, act, these practices of purification? These are the things that God prescribed. Why would he stop that mechanism? Why would he do that? Because that's what all that buying and selling and exchanging, that's what all that stuff is about in the temple. So what gives? Why is Jesus angry exactly? Why is he filled with righteous anger over this specific thing? Firstly, this is certainly a symbolic act. Even though the next day the temple probably went back to doing what it was doing. This is the sort of thing that prophets did. It's a symbolic act. And I would call it this. It is a sacred, sacramental performance art. That's the way I think of these things. Jeremiah did similar things out in public. God told his prophets to make these sorts of statements, public statements, as a way of drawing a line in the sand. Okay? It was often a sign of God's judgment or a sign of his warning against his people's waywardness. And that's how we need to see Jesus' actions here. So it's a symbolic act, judgment and warning against sin. And, you know, we see, we see things like this happening in other places, smaller versions of this. 
Uh, like when he tells his disciples, look, shake the dust off your feet when you come to a town that refuses to uh, welcome you in peace and receive you in the gospel. Shake the dust off your feet. It's a similar act, okay? It means something. But what sin is Jesus calling out in this act? Exactly. I'm going to start with the low-hanging fruit. He's certainly incensed that the temple is more focused on business rather than on the worship of God. The onus is completely wrong. Thus that need for cleansing, right? The temple had become a really worldly place. It evolved into business, into profiteering. And during Passover, business is booming, right? High season. There is something about that entire economic system that I think you'll get that I think it caters and appeals to like the lowest common denominator of spirituality, right? It feels a little slimy, doesn't it? it it's the world of church, Jesus gear and Christian living apparel. There's something about that that certainly trivializes worship and trivializes the life of faith. And it sort of underscores this notion that if you buy these spiritual goods and services, you'll be purified and you're good to go, right? Thank you for your sacrifice. Uh, you may now enter God's presence in the door to your left. Here's your golden ticket. Bye-bye. Who's next in line? That sort of thing. It feels like the entrance to a spiritual theme park or like it's tourist season, right? The muck church syndrome, someone's called it. The whole point here, I think part of what Jesus is, is aiming at here is the worship of God, something very holy, has been become, it become very profane, very worldly. So the people of God, some of whom presumably are there to worship at this time, they're being herded and they're being sort of capitalized upon rather than being shepherded, rather than being invited into the Lord's holy presence and worship. So the way, I want to make this case, the weight of Jesus' judgment falls upon Israel's spiritual leaders here. Her shepherd's failure. They should have known better. Under their oversight, the worship life of the temple had become a mere shadow of what it was supposed to be. Priests, this is how it worked. They served because they had an inherited lineage, right? I descended from Levites, so they became a priest. They just cycled through that. Had nothing to do with their devotion to God. Just They happened to be born into a certain tribe and family, so okay, they become priests, whether or not they were devoted to God or not. They were often wealthy, aristocrats, and they often were pawns of the Roman government, okay? They lived very well while the working class was there to worship under them, if you can get the, the picture. They did pretty well under Roman rule, while the average Jewish person did not. So in other words, Jewish spiritual leadership is in bed with Rome, corrupt, worldly. They're the main reason the temple had become a market and an emporium, okay? Several mixed interests. Now, who else benefits from that? Guess what? Who else does well off this, these goods and services? Take a guess. Besides the Jews, the Jewish uh, leaders. Rome. Right on. Their coffers swell in proportion to how many animals are sold, how much the temple tax is, how many exchanges of money occur. So they get a cut too. Okay? So there's some question here as to who really, who really controls the temple, right? Regardless, it's not a very pretty picture. This entire system of temple goods and services is a sham and it has become a racket. Jesus sees this and he won't have it. So the underlying reason for his righteous anger, he's indicting God's shepherds for getting in bed with the Romans, for choosing worldly power over devotion, faith, and worship. So he's rebuking both the Jews and kicking out the Romans. He's making war on two fronts. 
Friends, that is a dangerous game of chicken. My goodness. To disrupt the temple marketplace during high tourist season, like Passover, you're hitting Rome and the Jewish leadership right where it hurts because you're hitting them in their pocketbooks. So he takes action and he cleanses the temple. And spiritually speaking, you cleanse something when it's been profaned or defiled. So we can see why that term is used to describe this scene in the gospel. Unless we forget, I could go off on this for a bit, but I won't. Jesus just called the temple my father's house. That's a very incendiary remark. Romans could care less about that claim, probably. But how do you think his own people receive that? Wait, what did he just say? My father's house? I mean, that's a really bold claim. Because he's saying, I'm God's son. Ooh, uh, that had to stymie and infuriate a few people. It's a question of authority, and Jesus is claiming it. And he's saying, I'm it. So there's a new sheriff in town. He's kicking out the slum landlords and... Worship, if you will, is now under new management. So Jesus dismantles this well-oiled machine, this economic machine, and he cleans house. And in doing so, he challenges both Jerusalem and Rome. This is such a dangerous thing to do. And he does it. He does it. But observe with me, because I think this is beautiful. We cannot miss the symbolism of this. And I, I suspect this is what Jesus was after. Look at what remains in the temple courts after everything's removed, after everything's cleansed and purged, after the entire business mechanism of sacrifices is gone, what remains? Who's there? Just Jesus. That's all who's left. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus, the one perfect, true sacrifice for all of us. He becomes the only remaining focal point. No other sacrifice is necessary anymore. He is making a point. That for us to be clean and purified, only one thing is needed, and it's Him. It's Jesus. He's all that remains. Everything else goes away. He's the last one standing. Folks, that's worth noting. That's some tremendous foreshadowing of what's to come. So He clears away all that isn't needed anymore, and just Him, is rem just him remains. Just Jesus. Now, this act is not going to go unanswered, nor does it. His opponents, uh, says the Jews, this is probably the Sanhedrin, uh, lay leaders, priests, scribes, they pipe up, uh, what, what sign can you give us that you have the authority to do this? In other words, it's kind of a how dare you, for one, what gives you the right? If you're acting on God's authority, you prove it. So they're ticked, right? Now they have a point. Who is this guy anyway? He's not certified, he's not a priest. He didn't come from the line of the Levites. He doesn't have a right to speak about what goes on here, what doesn't go on here. He acts as if he owns the place. If he has true authority given by God, like the prophets of old, like Elijah and Amos, you know what? He can prove it with a sign. So you, give us a sign. Signs are important to John. Really important. You can kind of think of them as miracles as well. They're a strong recurring theme that John is really purposeful about. In fact, he carefully lays out seven signs and miracles that Jesus does early on in his ministry. It's very purposeful. And John tells us that the purpose of those signs, they have one singular purpose, that people would believe in Jesus and follow him. That's the whole reason. So the way a sign functions in John's gospel, it's a fork in the road. Think of it that way. It's an invitation where Jesus says, are you going to follow me or not? Are you going to believe in me or not? It's just this fork in the road where there's no third way. It's, it's to the left or the right. And that's it. That's a sign. So Jesus replies, you want a sign? 
Okay? Destroy the temple. I'll raise it again in three days. Now we know what this means. It means crucify me, destroy the true temple, and I'll certainly provide the sign. That being my resurrection. Rise after three days. We understand this just fine. Okay? Jesus is making the point that he's the true temple. He's God himself. And he's going to be killed and resurrected three days later. But I can only imagine how that sounded to pretty much everyone else. Because they took it literally. You know, it took almost 50 years to build this place. This physical marvel. Look at this. How could you possibly rebuild it in three days' time? And it's a very pointed accusation if you read the language there. It's, there's sneering contempt. It's very pointed. How could you do that? So they're taking it literally. And Jesus is talking about <laughs> uh, something else. So we're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. We've got two very different conversations going on here. We cannot miss the shift here. Can't miss it. Jesus is saying this. It is no longer about a physical location like the temple. It's not what it's about. It's about a person. It's about me. Okay? You used to have to go to a physical location, a certain physical location to meet with God. The temple is all about physical proximity to that place. Now it is about relational proximity to me, the Son of God. It's about being in relationship with Jesus. Cliche to say, it's about a person, not a place. And Jesus is speaking prophetically here, though they don't know it yet, because the temple will be burned and decimated by Rome in 70 AD, save for that small little portion that remains called a wailing wall. Think about this with me. Fathom the impact of this with me if you can. You're a Jew living in that day and age. The temple, that physical place, is the only place where God resides in your mind. Here on earth. And it was the physical sign of God's covenantal faithfulness to you, to your people. And it's the symbol of your cultural identity. What happens when it's raised to the ground? What do you do? What does that provoke in you? I mean, you're stuffed at that point. You're spiritually homeless and probably not feeling a lot of love and hope. Talk about grief and spiritual exile. God, where are you? Have you abandoned us? I think when the temple's destroyed, if you're a Jew, I just can't imagine what that does to you. Massive. We can't, I don't even know, uh, I don't even know how we can get our arms around that. So if you're connected there, you're in a bad way. But if, what if you're connected to Jesus, right? It's who's the real temple? Jesus is. If you're connected to Jesus, you're never homeless, right? You always have a home in him. He never leaves you. That's God with us, right? God for us. He makes the human heart his new dwelling place. How about that? He brings the tabernacle to you and I. And in turn, he takes us, the people, God, and he makes us into a new temple community. It's called his body, body of Jesus. And it isn't made by human hands. It's not this physical place. Church is a people, not a place. And his church, his people endure and can thrive in the midst of tremendous adversity with or without a building. How about that? The the, uh, persecuted church is proof of that. The church thrives under adversity and grows often because he's in us. Jesus is here. He's in us. We're in him. So there's communion and fellowship that isn't bound by time or space. We have fellowship with our brothers and sisters all around the world right now doing what we're doing. Which is an incredible thing. And we're worshiping with the saints right now who came before us. Millions of them. Uh, You know, 
Communion and fellowship not being bound by time or space or location is not a bad thing for us to focus on in a pandemic where physical gatherings and physical places are so problematic, right? Let's hang on to that. We go back to Wordsworth. The world is too much with us. Let's go back to that. I think that's one of the timeless relevant warnings that I see here in this gospel story. There's a seduction and an allure of worldly power to accomplish religious, and I'm going to say Christian ends, right? Church getting in bed with the state. It's not difficult to think of examples in our world of politics right now, right? Left, I mean, it's just ugly. And if you read church history, I mean, trust me, things do not go well when Christians hitch their wagon to the prevailing empire and power. It just doesn't go well. It generally ends in violence and a lot of heartache. The world is too much with us. There's a temptation to power and to influence, whether that's you know, politics or business or commerce. There's any number of ways we can get off track. Notice that was the temptation, one of the temptations Jesus faced in the wilderness, as you recall. Worldly power, worldly glory. Do it this way. Take the easy way. They didn't do it. And I think the underlying problem that I see there is a lack of faith. We want to take the easy way out. And we're fast-track things. We want to be efficient. Well, careful what you wager. So I think we're back to two paths. And here's the way I'm going to cast them. We have the way of the cross back there or the way of the world. Here we're, we're still there. We've got the corruption of the temple, right? Very worldly, very compromised, very divided heart there. And by the way, that's not a Jewish problem. That's a human problem. Okay? That's a church problem too. As Christians and as the church, do we follow Jesus? Do we walk the way of the cross? Is the church a place of true worship, true devotion? Or in our lack of faith and impatience, where have we been untrue to God? Right? Where's the world too much with us? I'll close here. I'm going to put these in Lenten categories, Lenten terms. During Lent, perhaps one of the things Jesus wants to do with our fellowship is to cleanse and purge us of some of the things so that only he remains. Maybe Jesus wants to do a similar work. Maybe there are things he needs to clean some house on. Where is the world too much with us in our fellowship? I think it's a fair question. To put a Lenten category around it that I've been speaking of, how can we empty our hands? Okay, where can we let go of that stuff? One of the fascinating things I find about this story is that uh, the picture is, is stunning to me because you have an old temple and a new temple in this story. You've got the physical temple and then you have Jesus, the new temple. Quite a paradigm shift if you're a devout Jew. Holy cats. This, these are the old things passing away. Cherish things, beloved things. This is your temple, right? Identity. But here's the Lord bringing something new. New temple in the person of Jesus. Here's a question for us collectively. Are we ready to embrace the new things that Jesus brings? Surprising things, things we didn't plan on. And to put the Lenten point on it, about open hands, it's, it, it's that. Uh, you know, what can we open our hands to? We've just emptied our hands of something. What can we open them to? What new things is Jesus bringing as old things pass away?